by which I mean the prologue and the epilogue are like the bookends or the boards on the beginning and ending of a book. And folded in between is the meat of the book itself. So it is with this fourth gospel. The prologue and the epilogue are like the boards at the front and back of a hardback volume. Those boards folded around the content pages of the volume. The bookends of John's gospel function like an envelope. They are like a bracket. They enclose or frame the heart of the evangelist's story of Jesus. At the inception and at the conclusion of his work, a framing device to envelop the heart of his story of Jesus. Now, on a side note, all four of the Gospels display this bookend pattern. An opening prologue, a concluding epilogue. Matthew's prologue is the genealogy and birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. His epilogue is the Great Commission in chapter 28, a bookend to the heart, a meat of his gospel. Mark's prologue is the appearance of John the Baptist and Christ in the wilderness, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. His epilogue is the empty tomb commission in which the angel instructs the women to tell Jesus' disciples that he goes before them into Galilee, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Luke's prologue is the Christmas music. I trust you heard a great deal of it in the past season. Mary's Magnificat, or Bach's version thereof, none more glorious. Zacchaeus's Benedictus, the angelic Gloria, Vivaldi's great Gloria, again, none more glorious. Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, or Simeon's Song, the Christmas music of Luke chapter 1 and 2, the prologue to the third gospel, and Luke's epilogue, the famous Emmaus Road appearance, in which Jesus shows that the entire Old Testament canon, from the law and the prophets and the writings, are fulfilled in him, the risen Christ. Don't insult Jesus with any of this nonsense that there are verses in the Old Testament that don't deal with him. He will teach you on the Emmaus Road that it all, every part of it, speaks of him. Yes, it does. Because he's the heart of the story from Genesis 1 to Revelation. Now, I want you to observe two things about this little structure here. As the prologue and epilogue fold in the contents of the narrative, so they fold the reader into the story. As he brackets his story, he envelops you. He includes you as you read in the drama. He wants you to come in to the narrative. He wants you to live inside the story. He doesn't want you standing or sitting on the outside as a spectator. This is not a Roman Colosseum event. Nor is that what church is. Church is not a spectator sport. We are not going to ecclesiastical nightclubs. Church is you being drawn into the story. You are not a passive listener. You are an active participant. The preaching moment, the homiletic enterprise, the encounter of you with the text is not to impose something on you, 
Every moralist can do that. Any Hindu or Buddhist could do it. You could go to the Fraternal Order of the Eagles and get a message like that. The preaching moment is to bring you into the story. So it is not the position of the pulpit to impose upon the pew so you can apply it to your own life. The position of the pulpit is to draw you into the text so you live out of the narrative, the drama. That's the job of a biblical preacher. Because if you read the sermons in the book of Acts, that's exactly what Peter and Paul are doing when they preach. Or would you have another model for your preaching? Cultural context and application so we can relevantly apply the text to our modern listener. I don't read any of that in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, nor do I read any of that in Paul's sermons in Acts 13, etc., etc. I don't find them fishing for culturally relevant news events in the Roman arena of their day in order to grab the attention of their audience. What I see them doing is inviting their audience to live in the drama of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. And you see, that is one of the remarkable distinguishing elements of that church in the book of Acts. They lived in union with Christ. Playoff for the Seahawks means nothing compared to living in union with the risen Christ. Benji, go in good conscience. Bless your heart. I hope, I hope you have a good time Saturday. But if my Steelers don't make it to the Super Bowl, I am going to be very disappointed. Yes, I'm still a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I remember the fearsome foursome and those great years in the 70s. I was a Western Pennsylvania boy. Anyway... Do you understand the difference that this makes when the centrality of your worship experience is not what you get out of it? It's what you get into it. Into Christ. Or is he not the most precious thing in your life? Or are there other gods that you have besides him? Even when you're sitting out there or do you have to be screwed up by some tantalizing application so that oh I got a nice anecdote I got a good story I got a great joke today and wasn't the praise band awesome was Jesus awesome did you find your life hidden with Christ in the text. That's Paul in Colossians 3. He's talking about Jesus as the most important thing in your existence. Is that not awesome that you would be joined to Jesus Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit, that he would let you participate in his life? Oh, I'd be blinded for that. I'll go to Damascus for that. I'll have him lay his hands on me to remove the scales so that the light might shine out of the darkness for that. I become a new creation in Christ Jesus for that. That Christ would join my life to his. My damnable hell-deserving life to his glorious heavenly life. The richness of what you are invited to Sunday after Sunday as you come in to the precious word of the risen Christ.
Now, John is doing this to you even though you're unaware of it. And you see, you never thought of it before, did you? That he set up his prologue and epilogue so as to envelop you in the drama of his narrative. Not so that you can be a spectator, but that you can be a participant identifying with the drama. This is your life. You are in the text with those whom Jesus touches. Well, as John encloses his readers in the gospel, He does it with the fullness of the history of redemption. He does redemptive historical inclusion. He can't do anything else because he lives in the fullness of the times. He knows that the end of the age is upon him. Christ is risen. There's nothing more to come. Nothing more to come except the second coming. That's it. There's nothing more. Christ has displayed it, revealed it demonstrated it and it is yours as a gift full and free in all of its richness in all of its passion yes the passion of Jesus who loved you so much that he would die to be raised to join you to himself and in eternal marriage. And he will never divorce you. No, he will not. The cheapening and trivialization of the gospel in our time is as much an obscenity as it is an absurdity. For if you understand what the writers of the scriptures are doing, then you understand how hungry and thirsty you are to be fed Sabbath after Sabbath with a rich union with Christ that is sweeter and sweeter week by week. Is it not so for you who love him? You see, Your life is drawn into the life of Christ in the text. If you are pursuing true relevance and true application and true significance, you step into the heart of the gospel. That's why he wrote it. He inviting you to see your life sandwiched between the boards of the ontic deity of Christ and his loving tender recommission of that abominable apostle who excoriated him repudiated him, cursed him, that Jesus said, Lovest thou me, Simon? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus is your story. That's what John is telling his audience. There is no other story. Not for you or for me. I am not urging you to monasteries or convents. You will live in the world, even as the early church lived in the world. But you will live your story in the world. And that the world will not overcome.
And so <clears throat> I am telling you to reverse the vectors as you read and listen. I am telling you not to come and sit to get something out. I'm telling you to come and jump in. You come in to the text. And your life in Christ Jesus will explode with sweetness and grace. And a new vision, yes, a new vision of the depth and the riches of Christ Jesus. Now, the prologues of each of the Gospels are related to the fullness of the past history of redemption. Each prologue is a declaration of a new beginning in the history of redemption with the coming of Christ. That is very easy to see in this fourth gospel. In the beginning was the word, a phrase which echoes Genesis 1.1. John is drawing an intentional parallel, even by using the same language between the protological old creation and the eschatological new creation. Once again, look at your handout. You will follow the significance of the vocabulary I am using. John is telling you in verse 1 of his gospel, I am declaring a new beginning. As with the first creation, so with this new creation. But this wonderful difference I proclaim to you, this new beginning, this eschatological new creation, is an event in which the Word became flesh. God became man. Incarnation, then, is the mark of the turning of the ages. Incarnation is the mark of the eschatological new beginning. This is a dramatic intrusion of God into history. He takes the flesh of the first Adam, the protological Adam, and he unites that nature to his own so that God becomes man and he does it so that you, you sons and daughters of Adam, may become the children of the eschatological Adam, the last Adam. You may become the sons and daughters of God. That is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. It is not Denison. It is not Voss. It is not Ritterboss. It is higher than all three of us stacked together, put together, bound together. It is the inspired, infallible apostle. I didn't invent the language. It's in the book. Now, don't excoriate me for using a vocabulary that you think is esoteric. It comes right out of the text. Athanasius was so right. Yes, he was. In his remarkable incarnation of the word, indeed, a work every Christian ought to read for the edification of his soul. It's wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Athanasius was so right. The Son of God became man so that men might become the sons of God. Simple as that. Simple as that. So, as we read this fourth gospel, we will not take our eyes off of Jesus. Christ is the center of John's gospel, just as Christ is the center of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Gospel of John, as the whole Bible, is Christocentric, Christ-centered. John centers our attention upon Christ from prologue to epilogue with the body of the Gospel in between. Christology deals with who Jesus is. 
John will continuously present to us the claims which Jesus makes to his identity. He is the Son of God, ontic deity, second person of the eternal Godhead, very God of very God. As we read this fourth gospel, we will not take our eyes off of what Jesus does. What Jesus is, who Jesus is, what Jesus does. Christ saves us from our sins. He is soter, Greek word which means what, Benji? Savior. Savior. And hence, when we discuss what Jesus does in the way of salvation, we are considering soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The fourth gospel is a soteriological gospel. John centers our attention from prologue to epilogue via the body of this gospel, not only on who Jesus is, but on what Jesus does. He takes away our sin. Through him we shall not perish. In him we have passed out of death into everlasting life. Christological gospel, soteriological gospel, And finally, the fourth gospel is an eschatological gospel. The word eschatology refers to abiding things, the things which remain, the things which are permanent or everlasting. Eschatology has to do with eternal things. Now, John presents Jesus as an eschatological person. He is everlasting in his being. And John presents Jesus' work of salvation as an eschatological redemption, an everlasting redemption. What comes with Jesus when he comes is the beginning of the eschatological era, the inauguration of the once and for all permanent, abiding, everlasting era. The time in which we live now in Christ Jesus is the everlasting time. It is the era in which we live now in Christ Jesus as a permanent era. The arena in which we live now in Christ Jesus is an eternal arena. The eschaton has come upon us in the coming of Christ to us. We belong to him who belongs already to the eternal, abiding, permanent, everlasting dimension. John understood this. His first century readers understood this. More's the pity that the modern Christian does not seem to understand this, but continues to strive for schemes to create an eschatological arena here on earth or to continue an eschatological arena here on earth when Jesus now already inhabits a perfect eschatological arena. I don't want to stay here. I want to go where he is already. Burn it up. I want to be with Jesus. So, you're maneuvering for power, for influence, for position, for status, for wealth, for reputation of the present is a contradiction of the eschatological nature of life in Christ. Make yourself of some reputation in the arena where Christ Jesus makes himself of no reputation? What a fool! What a petty, childish fool! Self-centered little baby. Jesus must increase and you must be nothing nothing that he may be all and all had enough of these reformed egomaniacs enough of them give me servants of Jesus who are content to be of no reputation with their Lord. Well, I want to come back to John 20, 30, and 31 at the beginning next week. And I want to look at those two verses 
in that next to last chapter from the Christological, soteriological, and eschatological standpoint. And so you may want to ponder that in advance and anticipate what I'm going to say. And I'll see whether you get it right next week. Now you have this little chart on this eschatological perspective, which may help you understand a little bit what I mean by this language and may challenge your thinking on how to consider the Old and the New Testament in relationship to that eschatological canopy. And that concludes the lectures for this evening. I will field questions now, but if you must go, please feel free to leave. But don't forget there are cookies back there. Grab one on your way out for the road or another cup of coffee, that great pilgrim brew. (laughs) Ben, John 20, 30, and 31, which is sometimes called the thesis statement, the thesis statement of the gospel. You're welcome to make comments if you wish. I'll interact with comments as well if you don't have a question. Yes, David. I got a lot out of that. (laughs) Either I'm a failure or you are. Thank you, David. Benji? You talked a bit about the Christology of the gospel. Uh, I don't know if we'll deal with this when we deal with the first chapter, but there's the debate over the verse 3 before that which came into being in him. Punctuation, the punctuation of the clause, yes. Now, I, I, would, I will hold that until I look at the prologue in, in detail, but I will address that when we get there. Again, thank you for coming. Lord willing, trust to see you all next week. <laughs> sure. Let me sit down. Well, I'll let you. Maybe somebody. Yeah, somebody. If, if somebody. I mentioned Colin Cruz's new brief commentary on John's Gospel in the revised Tyndall series from Erdman's publishing house. Cruz contains a first-rate synopsis, very well-done brief synopsis of the traditional view of Johannine authorship and his concurrence in it. But there was, in 1999, a masterful article published in the Journal for Theological Studies by Howard M. Jackson, which must be noted. Jackson takes the much-disputed 21st chapter of John's Gospel, which most critical liberals regard as an addition, an appendix to the gospel, not written by the original author. It was added on later by an anonymous author or by an anonymous Christian community. Jackson looks especially at John 21:24, and you may want to turn to that passage 
as we consider it in the light of his quite remarkable article. Now in John 21:24 the writer says, "This is the disciple who bears witness of these things, and we know that his witness is true." Now Howard Jackson in this JTS Journal of Theological Studies article argues that that is a formal deposition. It is a formal deposition by an eyewitness. It is a deposition which is similar to those commonly found in the Greco-Roman world. That is, depositions in which an author or a witness registers his signature so as to authenticate a document as his own. In other words, Jackson points out that the author of the fourth gospel is using at the end of his work a customary, contemporary, formal method of stating his authorship for the whole gospel, all 21 chapters, and therefore chapter 21 cannot be an appendix by an anonymous author. Now this may not amaze you, for you never doubted it. You didn't doubt that all 21 chapters were written by John. But you must understand what a hand grenade this is. In 1999... For a member of the critical liberal fraternity to say that, and I'm quoting, the beloved disciple was himself the author of the Gospel of John from page 6 of that article is nothing short of a revolution. I'm surprised they didn't string him up or shut him out of SBL and every other academic fraternity meeting. In addition to this amazing attestation of the authentication of the gospel, Jackson sees a high Christology in the fourth gospel. A high Christology, that is, Jesus is a divine personality, a high Christology, which is opposed to early forms of docetism. Adam, what's docetism? Jesus only appears to be a human. And why are the docetists interested in saying he only appears to be human? So that he couldn't have suffered in the flesh. Because the flesh is less than the spirit. So the Son of God only appears to take human flesh. He is dokeo. He is seeming to be enfleshed, but not really. Jackson's saying that the assault upon the humanity of Christ, the docetist doesn't believe he's really truly a man. Okay, He's a spirit being. He's not truly a man. That assault upon the humanity of Christ and the interest of preserving his alleged divinity makes a mockery. It makes the incarnation an illusion. And the beloved disciple, John, the author of this fourth gospel, is at pains to demonstrate the accuracy, historicity, facticity, objectivity of his eyewitness testimony gospel by deposing his authentication to the reality of the incarnation. And then he follows it up in the first chapter of his first epistle by saying what we have felt with our hands and seen and heard, etc., etc. If that isn't anti-docetic, I don't know what is. Now, with all of this interesting observation and affirmation from this scholar, Howard Jackson, he remains a critic. Oh, Howard, you are so close. He does not believe that we have the ipsissima verba 
Yesu, that is the very words of Jesus. John's gospel, in other words, for Howard Jackson, is an eyewitness but not an earwitness gospel. His record of the words of Jesus cannot be taken at face value but must be further authenticated. Howard, that's a failure of nerve. If the gospel as a whole has been endorsed as authentic, then why not the speeches of Jesus as parts of the whole? I see no more reason to doubt the genuineness of the speeches than to doubt the genuineness of the beloved disciples' claim to be the author of the whole. And so, as remarkable as the article is, and as stunning as it is, in the late 20th century, dawn of the 21st to affirm from a critical liberal that the beloved disciple was the author of the fourth gospel. He can't follow through. You see, the fraternity still is tugging on his tuxedo. Now, with respect to the question of provenance, and the English word provenance comes from the Latin word provenio, and I'm going to ask my Latin scholar to translate the word provenio. Adam? Come before or come forth from. Yes, provenance. Where did this gospel come from? What is its provenance? We don't know. There is nothing in the gospel that settles that question, and that question has been debated since the second century. Well, if we want to know where it comes from, where was it going? Where was it being sent? What was its destination? Once again, there is nothing in the text that clearly settles that question. The early 2nd and 3rd century tradition is that the gospel was destined for Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, because of the beloved disciples' association with Ephesus and the island of Patmos. So those questions remain open, and happily they are not questions that determine the meaning of the book or our theological insights into it. Now, if you will take the next handout in your packet, which is the icons, in the iconography of the ancient church, the four Gospels are represented symbolically. They are represented symbolically by apocalyptic imagery. And this apocalyptic imagery is drawn from two passages in the Bible. The first is Ezekiel 1, verse 10, which reads as follows. As for the form of the four creatures, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right side of the face and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Now, Ezekiel 1.10 is supplemented by Revelation 4.7, which reads, And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a bull. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Since the four creatures are presented as having wings, we have the winged man, the winged lion, the winged ox, and the winged bird or the eagle. Now the winged man represents man as the king of creation. Man as the highest of God's creatures. The winged man as a symbol of the humanity of Christ 
is the image of the Gospel of Matthew. The winged lion represents the king of the wild beasts, the royal dignity of the king of beasts. The winged lion as a symbol of the king of kings is the image of the gospel of Mark. The winged ox represents the king of the domestic beasts, the strength and virtue of the horned bull. The winged ox as a symbol of the power of the Lord Jesus is the image of the gospel of Luke. The eagle represents the king of the air, the lord of the skies and heavens. The soaring eagle is a symbol of the high and lifted up, yea, heavenly dignity of the Son of God. The eagle is the image of the gospel of John. The gospel of John, eagle-like gospel, gospel which soars like the eagle from the infinite regions of heaven to earth, from the earth below to the heaven of heavens above this fourth gospel soars. Soars as the gospel of God, God the Son, God the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It is this soaring revelation, this heaven-intruded declaration of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ which is unique to this gospel. Nor do I mean to diminish the testimony of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to the deity of Christ. But what is plain there is even plainer here in John's gospel. The word was God, third clause, first verse of the first chapter of this gospel. The church down through the ages has treasured the fourth gospel as the gospel of the ontic deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say ontic deity to distinguish this orthodox affirmation from all forms of liberalism in which Jesus of Nazareth merely functions as the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand when I use the term orthodox, I am not talking about Eastern orthodoxy. Orthodox is a Greek compound, orthodoxos. It means right teaching or right doctrine. And this seminary is an orthodox theological seminary. We are orthodox in the Catholic sense, small c. We affirm the doctrines of the Trinity with all Christians. We are orthodox with respect to the Protestant Reformation. We affirm the confession of sola scriptura and sola fide. And we are orthodox with respect to Reformed theology. We affirm unashamedly and unabashedly the five points of Calvinism and the whole counsel of God. Orthodox Christology, that is the orthodox view of the person of God, is that he is ontic deity. Ontic Christology affirms with the author of the fourth gospel and the orthodox church down through the ages that the being, the ontos, the being of the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the being, the ontos of God. God the Son, second person of the ontological trinity. So with the Athanasian Creed, we confess and affirm, as John himself would, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet these are not three gods, but one God. All forms of liberalism, and you will notice from your handout, which has a summary of conservative and liberal views, the liberals broken down into classic liberalism and neo-orthodoxy, all forms of liberalism reject 
the ontic deity of Jesus Christ. You can tell a liberal preacher, you can tell a liberal believer by one simple question. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God? Well, no, he shows us what God is like. I didn't ask you that. I asked you whether you believe Jesus of Nazareth is God. Is there a copulative verb between Jesus of Nazareth and God? That is, is the right side of the equation and the left side of the equation equal? Jesus of Nazareth equals God. God equals Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe that? Well, he shows us. He's a witness to what God. He shows us what God is like. Is he God? No, he's not God. No liberal will admit that. So if you want a litmus test for those churches you're visiting, or if you're looking for a congregation where you can camp out, where they believe in the orthodox deity, that is the ontic deity of the Son of God, I invite you to this congregation. But in the meantime, if you want to test where you are, ask them that question. And if they hesitate, if they equivocate, if they try to dance all around that, shake the dust off your feet and come over. Now this is very serious in contemporary Christology and has been for the last 150 years. Because all liberals affirm what is called functional Christology. And all liberals reject ontic Christology. So you will read Raymond Brown's commentary and Rudolf Schnackenberg's commentary on the Gospel of John. And they will all talk about the Son of God functioning with that title. It is a title of dignity assigned to Jesus by the early Christian community which believed that he was raised from the dead and therefore they gave him this high standing and this great royal, in fact, this great divine title. But he wasn't really that. He only functioned that way. The functional Christology of modern theology repudiates ontic Christology. And in so doing, repudiates the historic or Catholic small c confessional tradition of the church. They can dance all around it. They can redefine it. But a duck by any name is still a duck. And if he only functions as the Son of God, he isn't the very being of the Son of God. I don't care how you dress it up. As Cornelius Van Til would say, an antithesis is always an antithesis. They can't make anything ontic out of functional Christology. When the oneness of the Son of God is affirmed in liberalism, it is not an essential quality it is rather an affirmation of a dignity. It is an assignation of a worthiness. It is a designation of a certain role. Jesus becomes a model for others to imitate. For the liberal in Jesus, it is always imitatio dei, never essentia dei. It is always the imitation of God. Jesus shows us what God is like. It is never the essence of God that Jesus is the essence of God. That is the second person of the Godhead. Now, on a footnote, if you've had any dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that this is essentially what they believe, only they are not as sophisticated as the liberals. And you know that the answer of an Orthodox Christian to the Jehovah's Witnesses is that if Jesus of Nazareth is not the ontological Son of God, the Son of God who is God, and Jesus of Nazareth cannot save you, or me, or any other creature. He can only hang upon that bloody gibbet for himself.
and for no one else. Dear brothers and sisters, if we do not have an ontic divine savior, we have no savior. This is absolutely non-negotiable. If Jesus be not God, we be still in our sins and are of all men and women most to be pitied. But if he is God, as praise his name he is, then indeed salvation has been revealed in these last times, and you are invited to place your weight of damnation, which you justly deserve, upon his everlasting God-natured person. And he will burn it away with that divine personality and nature and majesty and satisfy for all eternity. But if you have to pay that price, you will not come out. No, you will not come out until you pay the last penny. We cannot yield on this or we have no Christianity. We have no doctrine of salvation if we have no doctrine of the deity of Christ. That's what's at stake. We can argue about baptism, dispensationalism, charismatic movement, etc. We can, we can have discussions about all of that. We cannot argue about this one except to be even more persuaded of its truth and absolute essential necessity for salvation. Now, apart from the clear and distinctive testimony in John's Gospel to the deity of Christ, Christ is God, God the Son, second person of the ontological trinity, the fourth evangelist has differentiated his Gospel from the synoptics, and when I use that term synoptics, I trust you understand, it's the other three Gospels, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, distinguished from John's Gospel by that term. He has differentiated his gospel from the synoptics in several unique ways. The gospel of John contains only a select number of miracles. Most scholars count only seven. Whereas the synoptic gospels contain an explosion of miracles from the ministry of Jesus. John's Gospel has virtually no parables, if in fact it contains any parables properly so-called at all, whereas the synoptics record dozens, you understand, it's the other three Gospels, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, distinguished from John's Gospel by that term. He has differentiated his Gospel from the synoptics in several unique ways. The Gospel of John contains only a select number of miracles. Most scholars count only seven. Whereas the Synoptic Gospels contain an explosion of miracles from the ministry of Jesus. John's Gospel has virtually no parables, if in fact it contains any parables properly so-called at all, whereas the synoptics record dozens of parables, some scholars have counted a total of 45, though there is no consensus on the exact number. Notice also that John's Gospel contains lengthy discourses, that is, long speeches by Jesus. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is certainly a lengthy discourse, as is Matthew's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. But John's so-called farewell discourse, that is John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, is but one very long instance of what is routine in this gospel. John records many long speeches of Jesus. 
the synoptic gospels predominate in the theology of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, all three of the synoptics contain Jesus' charismatic or sermonic, kerygma or kerux means preacher, herald, proclamation, charismatic or sermonic proclamation of the presence, the intrusion, the breaking in of the kingdom of God with Christ's own advent. Matthew 4.17, Mark 1.15, Luke 4.43. I want to note as an aside at this point that Jesus preaches the presence of the kingdom of heaven. The miracles of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels are demonstrations of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. The parables of Jesus in the synoptics are illustrations of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. You have a kingdom theology in the synoptics supported by the preaching, the parable proclamation, and the miraculous signs of Jesus in the synoptic evangelists. John, on the other hand, does not even mention the kingdom of heaven and only uses the phrase kingdom of God twice in John 3.3 and John 3.5 in that famous nighttime interview with Nicodemus. Very, very interesting. I draw your attention to another unique feature of this fourth gospel, Nearly 50% of it deals with the last week of Jesus' life. What we may call Holy Week composes chapters 12 through 20 of John's Gospel. No other Gospel devotes this much space to the days of Jesus between the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the resurrection appearances on Easter Sunday. Finally, we meet certain characters only in John's Gospel. Nicodemus, the woman at the well in Samaria, Lazarus, only John introduces us to these individuals. It is a unique Gospel. Now, to the liberal student of the Bible, these differences suggest tensions. In fact, these differences suggest contradictions. Thus, the liberal scholar and commentator finds John's gospel less historically reliable than the synoptics, though I should point out that most liberals cede very little historicity to the synoptics as well. The most famous liberal New Testament scholar of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann, would grant only this with respect to the historicity of the events and words of Jesus in any of the fourth Gospels. He called it the Das. Now that German word, Das, means the thatness. The thatness of Jesus is historical. That he existed is true, more than that is myth. According to Bultmann, all we can know about Jesus of Nazareth is that he lived. Everything else has been invented. And he was the premier New Testament scholar of the 20th century. But the scholar who takes seriously the historicity and inspiration of the Gospels sees not contradictions or tensions, but as Gerhardus Voss would say, a manifold aspect, a multiform character to the wonderfully complex story of Jesus our Savior. Consider the four Gospels as you would consider a diamond. As you turn the diamond, you observe different colors, different angles, different reflections of the light as the facets of the diamond reveal their deep, rich splendor. So it is with the fourfold gospel, Matthew through John. 
Each gospel is like a facet of the diamond. It is the same diamond, but it reflects the richness of the life of Christ from four points of view. We do not suggest that the different reflections from the same diamond are unreal or contrived or invented or mythological. No, we revel in the rich diversity contained in the unity of that single brilliant rock. And so we should consider the four Gospels analogously. Now, as we proceed to study this gospel each week together, I will be examining the structure of each pericope. No, it's not pronounced pericope. It's pericope or section. The word means a section of a work, section of a chapter. We'll be looking at the structure of the pericopes as one of the keys to understanding and interpreting John's record. Tonight I want to begin the discussion of the structure of the fourth gospel in the simplest yet most comprehensive manner possible. If you're following on your handout sheets, the fourth gospel begins in a particular way and it ends in a particular way. In between the beginning and the end is the meat of the gospel. John inaugurates his story of Jesus with a prologic peon, that is, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, the so-called famous Johannine prologue. John concludes his gospel with a justly famous epilogic dialogue, chapter 21, the lovest thou me exchange between the risen Christ and Simon Peter. Prologue. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Meat of the Gospel, chapter 119 to chapter 2031. Epilogue, chapter 21. Now, Raymond Brown, in this justly famous Anchor Bible Commentary, has persuasively argued that the heart of the Gospel, the meat of the Gospel, may be further divided into two additional basic units the book of Jesus' signs or his miracles, chapters 2 to 11, and the book of Jesus' hour or his crucifixion, chapters 12 to 20. There are numerous other proposals for structuring the gospel, and Malakuzil contains a number of pages reviewing these more than 20 suggestions for a structural outline of the gospel. But I am content with this simple four-point outline put forth by Brown, prologue, book of signs, book of the hour, epilogue. Now you'll notice that that structure suggests a kind of bookend paradigm by which I mean the prologue and the epilogue are like the bookends or the boards on the beginning and ending of a book. And folded in between is the meat of the book itself. So it is with this fourth gospel. The prologue and the epilogue are like the boards at the front and back of a hardback volume. Those boards folded around the content pages of the volume. The bookends of John's gospel function like an envelope. They are like a bracket. They enclose or frame the heart of the evangelist's story of Jesus. At the inception and at the conclusion of his work, a framing device to envelop the heart of his story of Jesus. Now, on a side note, all four of the Gospels display this bookend pattern, an opening prologue, a concluding epilogue. 
Matthew's prologue is the genealogy and birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. His epilogue is the Great Commission in chapter 28, a bookend to the heart, a meat of his gospel. Mark's prologue is the appearance of John the Baptist and Christ in the wilderness, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. His epilogue is the empty tomb commission in which the angel instructs the women to tell Jesus' disciples that he goes before them into Galilee, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Luke's prologue is the Christmas music. I trust you heard a great deal of it in the past season. Mary's Magnificat, or Bach's version thereof, none more glorious. Zacchaeus's Benedictus, the angelic Gloria, Vivaldi's great Gloria, again, none more glorious. Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, or 